The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I'm going to read from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. Last time we looked at the beginning of this Gospel, these first four verses that tell us of Luke's purpose and something about what Scripture is, really. But now we move on in a sizable chunk here of text before we get to the actual birth of Jesus. Luke 1, listen to God's Word as I read verses 5 through 25. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years." Once when Zacharias' division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. When the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years." The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home, and after this his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor 
and taken away my disgrace from among the people. May God bless our understanding of his holy word. I'm sure you realize that primitive people experienced a kind of daily amazement each morning when the fears and terrors of dark night fled away at daybreak in the rising of the sun. It's, it's really no wonder that ancient people looking for something to worship and revere made the sun, that fiery ball in the sky, into a deity in their mind because of the drama that the sun could bring about day in and day out. In Alaska, up near the Arctic Circle, I've never experienced, perhaps some of you have, what they talk about, the darkness that lasts for months, a lot of depression, a lot of dreariness as people wait for day to come, not for hours, but for months. And yet that long Alaskan darkness really is nothing so extreme when you compare it to 400 years of divine silence of God's revelation that took place between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the gospel in the New Testament. To folks who lived in those times, it must have seemed as if somebody put out all the lights of heaven and God didn't dwell there anymore because there certainly was no new revelation in that whole period. If you would look at the very last page of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4 records a promise from God. The Lord said through Malachi in 4.2, For you who revere my name, the Son of righteousness will rise again with healing in his wings. And when that happens, you will go out and leap like calves released from their stalls, but it took 400 years for that promise to be fulfilled. And in Scripture history, God's people were in a weakened condition. Their faith was no longer keen. They were not waiting for the promises of God, and actually those who truly hoped to see these things were few and far between by the time of, that we're talking about here near the birth of Jesus. Our passage in Luke 1 is predicting that it is the birth of John the Baptist that will be the first gleam of God's new daybreak for humanity. Now, Luke 1, 3, we heard from this gospel author promising to examine facts about Jesus from the beginning, but now we see that he's delving back even before the physical beginning and conception of Jesus to to talk about the forerunner, the herald who would precede Jesus in history. Now, I'm sure you've heard some things about John the Baptist in the past. He, he gets attention variously in the different Gospels because he is extremely important. He's a direct link holding together the prophetic end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And you can really think of his appearing, his announced birth here, This passage is usually called the Annunciation to Zechariah or the birth of John the Baptist foretold or something of that kind. This is really God breaking forth after a long, dark silence. Maybe you won't like my image or you'll even think it's trivial, but I can't help but 
call to mind the way a particularly popular Broadway musical of 50 or 60 years ago begins, and just about everybody knows the musical in the beginning, Oklahoma, when Curly the Cowboy rides onto the stage or into the film, and he sings, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. Is it a stretch to think that that's John the Baptist in a sense? Coming to say, God's new day is here. For our first point this morning, I want to look at verses 5 through 12 of this text to see how these events do speak of a supernatural breakthrough after 400 silent years. Luke sets the scene. He gives us a couple tent pegs of history to anchor the whole thing and says this, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were upright in the sight of God, serving all of God's commandments and regulations without blame. Yet they had no children, for Elizabeth was barren. Well, there's the anchor points that we can tell where this is in history. King Herod, the first of those who bore this name. There were several, and it gets a little confusing. But this one is the one who said of himself, I'm the great one. And so he's known as Herod the Great, the first of the Herods, who ruled as what we would call kind of puppet kings in the sense that he didn't have sovereignty. Rome was over him. He had to answer to Rome for everything he did. But Rome allowed him to be there as a half-Jewish, half-Idumean man who was basically hated by the Jews, and yet he posed as a Jew. He rebuilt the temple of God. It was his rebuilding project and putting all that gold in place that caused the disciples, you remember, to say to Jesus, look at those grand buildings, Lord. And you wonder whether Herod was really rebuilding for the glory of God or the glory of Herod the Great. He was a cruel man. He was cunning. He killed members of his own family. He killed babies in Bethlehem. And he's put alongside here an obscure couple that we would know nothing about except for their chosen role, chosen by God, to be the parents of the forerunner, a pious country priest and his wife. And they were childless. They were blameless. Interesting, blameless here means they lived by the law. They didn't disobey the law in any outward way that you would say, oh, look at that, what hypocrites. No, they really followed God's law and had clean lives. They were blameless, but they were barren. You know, it hurts every time we read the accounts of various biblical women like Sarah or Hannah or here Elizabeth who wanted a child and could not, for whatever reason, have one. You remember scenes in the Old Testament, for example, Sarah who wanted Abraham's child and the decision that Hagar would bear the child, and then that was her idea, and then when Hagar did become pregnant, she vaunted it over her mistress and Sarah became very angry. She was jealous. Who but a woman who wanted to be a mother and couldn't be one can understand those very difficult and very painful emotions. There is an occasion in Deuteronomy 28 wherein one 
time it is said that women of Israel will become barren as a curse if they are part of certain acts of disobedience. And I wonder if what didn't happen was that Israel generalized that particular curse and said, well, not having a child is a curse, period. God has cursed you if you don't have a child. Well, that is not supportable by Scripture. Don't ever let anyone tell you that it is. The inability to have a child is not God's curse in every case or maybe in any case. It was in a particular instance in Deuteronomy. But the point our text is making about this particular couple who It doesn't say, you know, they're not in their 90s necessarily like Abraham and Sarah. It does say they're well along. That probably means like me, you know, 50s, 60s, still young, you know. But past the time when children come. And here they are with an unspoiled record of outward religious obedience, and yet we're shown that their lives feel really empty. They've missed the joy that so many people have in their home, and there's heartache there. Now, in those days, we know that there was actually, a, you might say, an oversupply of, of Jewish clergy to serve as priests. There were, in fact, 24 divisions of priests. I'm not sure. I haven't researched it to find out how many were in a division, but it was a good-sized group. There were a lot of priests available so many that they had to divide up the annual ceremonial year. And you can imagine, with 24 divisions, if they're going to do things equally, each group gets about two weeks to be serving in some way in the temple. And so, with a large group, when you need two a day to go in and have the special duty of lighting incense at the altar of prayer, which is in the holy place, that's not the most inner part of the temple, but the second innermost part, just shy of the holy of holies where only the high priest goes, someone went in there in the morning and in the evening to light incense. The reason? The incense represented the prayers of Israel, wafting to God, prayers for their deliverance, prayers of praise and thanks, prayers for the Messiah. And it was a great privilege. They drew lots for that. And you can imagine, now you've got two weeks to serve and your group is a big group. How often are you going to get to do this? Not very often. In fact, it might happen once or twice in a priest's lifetime. So this is a very big day in Zechariah's life. One commentator says he wonders if Elizabeth whispered to him that day, knowing what he was going to do, remember our special request at the altar. Who can say? It wasn't his own personal praying that he was there to perform. It was prayer on behalf of Israel. And so he had this great privilege. There he was as close to the symbolic presence of God as anyone ever got. And suddenly Zechariah knew he wasn't alone. What did it look like to see a man standing at the golden altar of incense? A man who he immediately recognized to be a messenger from God. Here he was praying. And suddenly he was confronted with an angel of the Lord. And not just any angel but one of those designated in Scripture as the archangel, Gabriel. 
Now, let me tell you, and I make no apology for the fact that Christianity is a supernatural faith. If you're a person that wants to say to yourself, gee, I'd like to have Christian faith, but weed out a lot of these really hard-to-believe supernatural elements like angels, I'm sorry, you've got the wrong Bible. This Bible is one that says there are beings created by God who do not ordinarily walk this earth. They dwell in the presence of God. And they serve as God's messengers. They serve as God's revealers. The word angelos in New Testament language means messenger. That's their fundamental role is to reveal God's will to men. They don't necessarily have wings. Some apparently do, but many do not. In fact, every time that they were first seen, the reaction of people is, I saw a man, or I wrestled with a man. And only after the fact do people understand this wasn't just a man. There's something about a being that stands before the Lord that carries with him an aura of God's holiness, God's authority, that men are in awe of these beings. Maybe one person speculates that it could be that we're so used to interacting all the time with sinful men and women that when we meet a being created by God with no sin, it's a total shock to our system. And innately we understand this is a different kind of person. Well, this particular angel that Zechariah saw identified himself. He spoke. He said, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Lord. You can trace this man out if you want. 500 years earlier than this, in the book of Daniel, Gabriel spoke to Daniel the prophet. And when that happened, Daniel chapter 8 tells how that prophet was terrified and fell prostrate before the angel. So you've got the scene. It's set for God to break his 400-year silence. Now, secondly, in verses 13 to 17, we hear Gabriel break that silence as he describes for us a divine prophecy about the forerunner of Jesus. He first said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will conceive and bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John. Isn't it interesting that he says, your prayer has been heard? Your prayer has been heard, so you're going to have a son. Now, does that mean Zechariah was at the altar just praying as a 50 or 60 or more year old man that he and his wife would have a son? I would like to think Zechariah was doing his duty as a priest, and, and his duty as a priest was to bear the prayers of the nation, to pray for Messiah to come, to pray for Israel to be lifted out of bondage to Rome and so on. And whether spoken or unspoken, though, a man could not come into God's presence without the thought of that long, unfulfilled wish being on his heart. Did he and his wife actively pray for it anymore? You wonder. But it was there. It dwelt at the back of their minds. God has never given us the joy of a child. So you see, when the angel said, your prayer has been answered, he meant you're going to have a child. Your personal request will be fulfilled. But at the same time, that child is leading to the fulfillment of anything and everything you've been praying on behalf of the nation. I'm bringing redemption. 
to the nation. I'm bringing everything that Israel's been longing for and praying for, at least some have still been praying for it, for 400 years. And so he tells of this son who will be the forerunner of Jesus. Just as, again, the Old Testament predicted. Again, go back to Malachi. Malachi 3.1 said when the day came that God would send Christ, he would send his greatest prophet to, quote, prepare the way, and he would be called the messenger of the covenant. Malachi 4.5 says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord comes. So again, this is prophecy being fulfilled. But then in verses 16 and 17, the angel gets into an actual description of what it is this forerunner is going to do. What function does he have? Well, one thing in verse 16 is he will bring back people of Israel to the Lord their God. The the word there is literally to turn them around. They're facing the wrong way. Their backs are turned to God. They need to be turned around. And you may know in the New Testament, that's what we call repentance. And that was John's message. Repent. Turn around. Humble yourself before God. That's the first thing that has to happen. But then also we're told here about the greatness of John the Baptist in that he would bear the spirit and power of Elijah to make a people ready for the Lord. Now, this is really significant because it's unique. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is not seen all the time. He's certainly there. Anybody who thinks the Holy Spirit makes his debut in in Acts 2 has not read the Bible. The Holy Spirit's all over the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit came in more occasional visitations upon people to speak for God. We would read something like Elijah, you know, received a a great portion of the Spirit of the Lord, or Elisha received a double portion of the Spirit of the Lord or something. For a particular time and office or task of prophecy, prophets were endued with the Holy Spirit. Do you see the difference with John? What does it say? And it's never said this of anybody up to this time. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from before his birth. Certainly, this was a remarkable prophet, one whom God endued with the very power of his Spirit in a permanent way. So Jesus would later say, among the sons born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Can you understand what a great statement that was? Think of everybody that was included. Jesus was saying, he's greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than David, greater than Isaiah. No son of woman ever born is a greater man, Jesus said, than John the Baptist. Why? Because he's the link standing right in the middle to show that God is now ready to speak and bring forth this great thing that he will do. And he was the forerunner, of course, who pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the third episode of our text comes in verses 18 to 25, and I summarize it by saying here that God's good news was greeted by human speechlessness. Zechariah heard the angel. It knocked him down. He just didn't know what to say. And so instead of giving a a well-thought-out, well-reasoned response, he just more or less blurted. And he blurted the first human thing that came to his mind, which was doubt. Doubt. How can I be sure of this? 
I'm an old man. My wife is along in years. I'm thinking biology. Don't talk theology. I want to know how this child's going to get born. Prove it. And it really was quite a challenge when you realize this man, this humble priest, was speaking to the spokesman of the Lord. Prove it. He wasn't an atheist. He was a man of faith, but he was a stumbling man of faith. And we, like him, quite often leave out of our belief system the belief in the power of the resurrection, that God can bring things alive where they are dead, that God can do what is impossible. We forget that we need to believe the plain declarations of the Word of God. We don't need special messages. We don't look for angels to come and tell us things today. We have what God wants to tell us. We need to believe his plain declarations in his written word. Well, God didn't blast Zechariah for his doubt. He treated him kindly. He didn't remove a blessing from him. He didn't change what was going to happen. But you see what he did. The mouth that questioned became a silent mouth, a mute mouth for all the time until John was born. This, this man who was supposed to be himself a priest who spoke for the Lord had to repent and think in utter silence for nine months. Small punishment, actually, for the great blessing that came. You know, I don't know that I've ever done this before, but someone left me a note after the first sermon, and I'm going to give you this note here because it's great. Someone listened to the sermon in the first service and put this on my chair, and here's what they said. God spoke through muteness, and he spoke volumes. He uses a child of a barren woman. The awesome irony of it all makes me laugh with joy. Couldn't say it better. This is God. This is God speaking even when his appointed spokesmen have to be mute bringing life where there's barrenness. Now, as we close, I want to give you two applications of this text that I think bring it home to us in a closer way. First of all, this. We see here that God's historic revelation always unfolds with a perfect timing to it. Galatians 4.4 tells us that when the time had fully come, God brought forth his son born of woman. Who was watching that clock except the sovereign God? Who knew that time except the sovereign God? The people in Israel weren't sitting there saying, my goodness, let's see, it's just about 400 years now. Isn't God going to do something pretty soon? No, most of them had had given up. They had gone and turned to secular pursuits. They weren't hoping for much of anything. They were in what I would call faith fatigue If they prayed, their prayers were more empty, rote prayers, maybe like many of us pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, The words come out of our mouth okay, but they're not connected to the brain very well. And isn't that perhaps how Zechariah and Elizabeth were still praying? Well, we're way past the time when God's going to do anything about that. We sure wish he would have given us a child, but we know it's not going to happen now. And God acted. I ask you, how ready are we to believe even hard-sounding things that God has unmistakably declared in his word? Do we accept everything Scripture has stated as being God's plans, his promises, his predictions? And are we ready to embrace with faith and hope 
new things that he may do, even in our circumstances, in our nation, in our time. We certainly see here that God's delays are not necessarily denials. And that we need to remember as we pray for other people to come to Christ. You know, I see this many times. Folks will say, well, I, I used to pray for my brother to come to the Lord. He's such a stubborn guy. I prayed for two or three years. It seems like I prayed almost daily for him, and nothing has happened. And here it is ten years later, and he still hasn't come to Christ. Well, are you saying God's delay is God's denial? That simply isn't seen in Scripture. And just as God had a right time for everyone to be physically born, he has his time when people will be spiritually reborn. Continue to pray. Continue to look for God to do great and mighty things by his Spirit. Secondly, is this application that says God's notion of human greatness is quite the opposite of ours. Again, think of it. Jesus saying, John the Baptist, this man announced not yet born himself, is going to be the greatest there ever was. What kind of greatness was it? You would think, goodness, he would certainly rate something better than the White House, a palace, silks to wear, trumpets to blow wherever he went, a a palatial office, a huge staff. What do you know about John the Baptist? He lived in the wilderness He wore animal skins. His diet was horrible. Locusts and honey. I might take the locust if there was enough honey on it, but I sure wouldn't want it for everyday breakfast. And where did it all take him? You know, for a while, some people thought, you are really great, John. Are you the Christ? They said, you must be the Christ. He said, no, 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 I'm not. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. And where did it lead him? to prison, and to beheading and the foolishness of one night's drunken festival in the palace of Herod Antipas. John also knew the way of the cross. He was brought into the world to give a message and to die for it. But what was so great about him was this. All the other prophets, you see, spoke of something and said, look down the corridors of time. It's going to come decades from now, centuries from now. God's going to do this. And people could say, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. John the Baptist, the only prophet who with his finger said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he was pointing at him. The only prophet who did that. The only prophet who linked everything of the Old Testament to the gospel and did it in total humility. Folks, with the coming of John the Baptist, God turned a centuries-long biblical night into an everlasting day. I'm not going to deal with the song of Zechariah. He sings a song at the very end of chapter 1. But I want you to focus on one line of it. It's in verse 78 near the end of this first chapter. Zechariah, after he gets his speech back, after the child is born, sings a song of praise to God. And just notice one line and listen to how it echoes Malachi. When Zechariah says, By the tender mercies of our God, the rising sun has come from heaven. He was saying, 
here's what Malachi predicted. And I want to say to you today, whatever your circumstance that brings you here to our midst, if it seems really cold and dark most of the time in your life, I need to tell you that your night of doubt or possibly outright unbelief is self-imposed. It is not necessary. For the Bible says Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, has risen with healing for you in his wings. It is time for you to lift the shades of doubt and step into the warmth and the light of God's everlasting, transforming new day in Jesus Christ. And our Father, I pray that we would not be so foolish, anyone here, to live in the dark, to shiver in the cold, to ask, is God ever going to do something? When you've done everything and you've brought us daybreak, may we not be creatures of the night any longer. Bring someone to a trusting faith in the Lord Jesus and affirm that one who feels like the shadows around them are so deep that they can't see their way. Draw them into the light of trusting your dear Son. For his sake we ask it. Amen.